Welcome to episode 148 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen, who is down in Miami, where I am not. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hola. What's up? Greetings from Miami. Yeah, Bienvenido. Bienvenido a Miami. That's how you say yeah, that. Yeah. Exactly. Smith taught me that. So how has your tournament been? We're now recording this late on Tuesday slash Wednesday morning. I was going to say uh, Wednesday uh, morning. Uh, let's I be guess, clear. I uh, guess pretty late ending schedule for today uh, but overall how, what are your general impressions of the first I guess 10 days or so now of this Miami tournament it's been an interesting one I mean there's been a lot of curveballs um that's for sure uh just you know with all the the guys kind of tumbling out of the uh of the tournament for different reasons Roger pulling out with a, the a stomach virus with that was going around it's been kind of a, a bit of a sickly tournament for the players uh thankfully that hasn't i don't think hit the media yet so maybe there is something to be said about having a media center that's you know three stories away and completely isolated and away from the players <laughs> yes, um, for quarantine purposes it actually comes in hand <laughs> yeah, i true. think you know i i just think that butch buckles really thought this through is what i'm saying um <laughs> yeah so so yeah so th- there was definitely that going around so but it was kind of interesting because for the first week at least for me and my purposes and my job of covering the WTA, I was telling a bunch of people, I was like, you know, I've been kind of accustomed to spending most of my first week being incredibly busy on upset watch, like constantly writing upset posts um, because of seeds losing early or things like that. And this tournament actually kind of didn't have that as much. I mean, the seeds, the top 10 seeds that were tumbling out were ones that you were kind of expecting. You know, Carlos Suarez Navarro had that ankle injury. Lucy Safarova still not at her best, um, but but for the most part, in the first week, everything was kind of chugging along according to plan, which was weird <laughs> um, on the WTA side. And then on the men, you know, you had the 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 weird, you know, Rafa retirement. It's just been a lot of stuff going on. And then obviously the carryover from Indian Wells with a lot of the chatter that uh, yeah. that started on that final day, it carried over into Miami. So um, it's been a weird 10 days, um, but it's kind of been mostly, at least for me, uh, about forehands and backhands, which is all I've ever wanted, you guys. <laughs> really? Is that all you want? I feel like, I, I, as somebody who, you know, covers the sport quite closely too, I enjoy when there are things besides forehands and backhands. So that's what I live for, the non-forehand and backhand things. I don't. I, I just, I, I it was getting to the point especially I think in Indian Wells where I just wasn't even I guess, I guess in 2016 that sort of thing was a scarcity I give you that right recent, like, recent events okay like I, I wasn't like you know when we were in Australia or um you know I took the time off in February but then in Indian Wells it just felt like I wasn't watching tennis and that was incredibly frustrating because at least for me and the way that I kind of approach my job and the kind of responsibility and the duty that I feel like I owe to the players like I want to cover what they're doing on the court because they're killing themselves to do it. And I just felt like that was taken away from me for, for much of this year for a variety of different reasons. And so this tournament has felt much more normal in terms of just being able to like settle down and to talk to the players and to not have to, you know, um, like for example, like in Indian Wells, when obviously everything was happening in the first week of, and, and you saw this as well, like during all access hour, I wasn't really a part of it. Not because I didn't have questions, but because I didn't want to sit there and burn. I knew each player was going to have 10 minutes. I knew what everybody wanted to ask these players about. 
And I just got out of the way because I didn't want to be accused of like, oh, you're burning the clock. And, uh, you know, so that the players don't have to answer all these, you know, non forehand and backhand questions. Whereas so here it's been a little bit, it's been nice to just kind of settle back into that, to kind of reconnect with the players and actually talk about, you know, their careers and what's going on on court and, and off court that affects that. And so I've been happier. That's definitely, I can say that here in Miami. Well, we're happy that you're happy. Let's exactly before we I'm get, sorry it doesn't sound like I'm happy. It's just that it's two it's, in the morning and it, I'm in the hotel and I don't want to like be too loud for fear that these walls are thin. Yeah. Hotel so, yeah. exuberance at 2, 2 a.m. is never appreciated. You, you guys, yeah, you get my bedroom voice. <laughs> it's very, very Roman Mars of you. Uh, before <laughs> before we get to, though, the uh, things that make you happy, the forehands, backhands, tennis, whatever, we should wrap up how the rest of Indian Wells's last day, I, I don't know what to call it, uh, derailment carried into redirecting some of the first week of Miami Obviously, we're talking about Raymond Moore's remarks on the final day and how they sort of played out. And there weren't many people left in Indian Wells to sort of react to them by the time it happened. So when they did get there, when they, everyone did reconvene in Miami pretty quickly, a lot of the top players were asked about it. Importantly, I'll, just, I'll really read it to you because I'm not sure if you went to any of these ATP pressers or not, or at least you were seeing the quotes and things before I was. Um, thoughts on how I think everyone handled it relatively predictably, really. I, yeah. I, I mean, Andy obviously was outspoken. Ford gotten a fun Twitter dust up with Sergei Stakowski oh about drawing power in Kiev and Laura. I don't Robson. know if you guys can see me, but I have hearts in my eyes right now. You're an emoji. You're a human <laughs> emoji right now. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I mean, and Roger Federer more. I think was like I think gave sort of the most realistic answer of everybody. Roger just like I think very cleanly assessed what the state of play is. You know, saying like he supports it, but it's ultimately up to tournament directors and their legacy issues and whatever. And Novak Djokovic, I don't get what he's – Novak Djokovic's reaction to all this, this entire week that it was, you know, irrelevant for him, sort of baffled me completely. I I was baffled. Were you yeah, baffled? I think, yeah, I think a lot of people were, not necessarily in terms of, like, what he said um, initially, I, because as we saw um, after Novak made his comments in Indian Wells, you know, um, uh, saying, you know, with the preamble of um, for equality and all these sorts of things, but, and the women has, have fought for what they get and that's great. And we're going to fight for what we get and that's great. But, and then he started to bring in the market factors and things like that. And that's where I think his answer got real muddy and got him into a bit of trouble. Um, but he, his initial response in Indian Wells was the party line, you know, from the ATP. And that, that matches that, what the ATP statement eventually was on the thing. Precisely yeah. right. I mean, it wasn't like the ATP disavowed anything that Novak said. It adopted it completely in terms of, you know, we're two separate tours. The WTA can fight what they – WTA is going to do what they do. We're going to do what we do. And we think that, like, you know, all these other factors need to be taken into consideration when it comes to prize money, et cetera, et cetera. And all they're saying so, there really is just that, like, whatever the WTA is able to achieve for itself in prize money, we're not going to see as a ceiling for ourselves. Right. And that's that's tough to object to as an independent business who's not – I mean, as much as we would like to th hope that, you know, the ATP would be a, a quality above all, they ultimately – their constituency is just the male players. So they don't really owe the women anything from a corporate level. Yep. So, yeah. So And, and Djokovic towing that line or, you know, echoing that or coming out in ahead of what, <laughs> what wound up being the echo was fine. It was just the way that he – sort of tried to walk it back afterwards, 
it was just so I just thought it very uncharacteristically clumsy of Djokovic because he wasn't ever changing that really position. He was just trying to add a lot more platitudes about liking equality, and it just it just I don't know it felt very flat for me. And for Djokovic, who's normally such a a master of tennis diplomacy to the point of saying, you know, I mean to the point of being too boring and too you know measured sometimes or too calculated. This was weirdly, I don't know, it just felt like a bizarre repeated swing and miss from him. Yeah, I mean, we have to take I mean, we have to take a bunch of things into consideration with respect to his initial comments in India Wells. I mean, he had just won his match, he had just won the title. He who knows how well he was briefed before uh in terms of the comments. Yeah, but he, you know? sh- he should have been. I will say. He should have been. That, that's oh, not sure. an excuse. If it I mean, no, it's it not might an be the excuse, reality, it's but, context. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, sure. not all excuses, not all context pieces of context are excuses. I'm not excusing what he said necessarily. I'm just saying that like I can understand how he found himself in that situation where he was briefed and maybe he didn't really understand the full implications of what uh and the consequences of what Raymond Moore's comments were and would be. You know, Raymond Moore eventually did step down um, uh, fairly quickly. I mean, what was it within 48 hours, I think? I think by the time, yeah, by the time I landed in Miami, I think is when I got the the message that he had stepped down. So it's very possible that just Novak didn't really understand how significant the comments were um, and so didn't understand politically that this was not the time. And I think that what was really disappointing about just what happened with it is that when Novak said what he said, and it's fine, we can all have this argument and we can debate it if we want to for the gazillionth time. If people want to have this debate, it can be, we can have it, it, whatever. But the issue for Novak is that, so he makes these comments and kind of starts to bring in, he's the one that kind of injected the equal prize money thing. Yeah, into it. that really wasn't going to be the topic before this. And then all of a sudden, the whole conversation pivoted away from, a lot of the headlines were pivoting away from you know, Raymond Moore said this thing and it's insulting and derogatory and the w- Serena Williams and Victoria Zarenka and the WTA have come out against it. And it turned into this whole, you know, revived like a goddamn Phoenix uh, discussion about equal prize money. And then the, the ATP released its statement, which was also, you know, kind of focused on the equal prize money argument as opposed to just uh, taking a stand against the comments that were made, you know, and that was like a weird pivot that happened within like a, you know, 12 hour span. And it, it, I just was really, that was one of the more baffling things for me because I, when I initially read Raymond Moore's comments and, you know, the wheels started to get in motion in terms of like, you know, everything that was happening and kind of like the, the crisis that day in a lot of ways, I just saw it about the comments. It never even occurred to me that this was going to be reopening the the Pandora's box of equal prize money again, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it was. And I just was like, wait, what? Like, I did not see this coming and I don't even understand. So that was where it got weird. And that's where he became the lightning rod, you know, because he was the player that brought it up. And then the ATP came out with their statement and kind of doubled down on it and all these sorts of things. And then obviously players started to pop up on Twitter, mostly lower ranked players, um, putting in their two cents and whatnot. So I agree with you. It was, it was very weird. I didn't, the, the walk back wasn't surprising. He, as we've mentioned, he's a, he's a good politician. He could be the president of Serbia. I don't know why he says that he wouldn't do it. He'd be amazing. But, um, yeah, the walk backs were, were a bit odd. Um, it's just, just, just that they didn't, what he was trying to correct was more of his preamble 
than the meat of his statement. And I guess he was trying to walk back maybe the parts that he got into trouble with, with the hormones and That's whatever true. else he was I saying. Forgot so, about he, the so, he was, so he was distancing himself from that part of it, which, you know, ladies know what he's talking about, whatever, <laughs> part two. Uh, he, and so that part I get. He wanted to make, make a, a fresher soundbite that didn't have that part attached. But as, as you said, with the lower players coming out, um, usual suspects a lot of times on these fronts. And again, the ATP corporate platform is to support this. That Not everyone has to be for equal prize money. Novak Djokovic is completely entitled to think that he uh, deserves more than, or that the men deserve more than the women. If he thinks they're really driving more economic, you know, gains for the sport. That's not, oh, I'm not going to crucify anyone for saying that. Um, just, yeah, the way that he... Just just that the statements he came out with, his corrections or apologies were just so unbelievably empty was what got me. And like I said, it should have been, I kind of feel like the news cycle and reaction by players, by tour, by media, everyone, what I would have preferred to have seen would just be like kind of a blanket tennis rallies around and everybody says like, you can't say that, right? Like like what, what Raymond Moore said was, you know, uh, derogatory and irresponsible and disrespectful and all the other adjectives you want to throw in there. Um, and it should have just been like a universal moment where everybody was like, no, you don't get, you can't say that. Instead, it became a thing that divided everyone mm-hmm. over a thing that wasn't even the thing that Raymond Moore really said. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like he wasn't necessarily i mean if Raymond I, Moore wasn't calling for unequal prize no it was his his answer was an aside to a question about whether or not that he would want to see like a quote-unquote supermasters equivalent on the women's side and then he went off on this tangent but it wasn't about like is indian wells ever going to consider like providing you know i mean i guess it's embedded in that question because if the men want to do a supermasters and they're going to ask for bigger prize money and that gets into a bunch of hairy situations, and maybe then it implicates equal prize money. No, but, but it but wasn't. You're right. It wasn't was playing the frame shifting all on his own. And I remember yeah, I, I asked him. I asked like him about. There. I asked him about Moore's comments initially, and he was the one who brought it to a, you know, pay scale place. And I wound up being right. like, "Wait, so you're saying you're not for equal prize money?" And then he sort of got further lost from there. One of the eventual benefits of all of this happening last week is that, Courtney, you got to sit in on a. I keep wanting to call it like a seminar more than a press conference. <laughs> it felt like it. From Billie Jean King and Chris Everett um, and Nicole Gibbs on the title of the transcript <laughs> about uh, equal prize money. And that was one of the ways that every, everything eventually shook out. I'm just curious. And we'll hopefully have some audio in here from that as well. But just what were your reactions to hearing uh, Billy, you know, really get to, I think, what is the, sort of the topic most in her strike zone? And she has a pretty wide strike zone. But this one, I she think, does. is right down the middle for her. Yeah, no, it did definitely. And and I think, I mean, my initial reaction, and it's, I think I've said this before on the podcast, my, whenever Billy speaks, like, I listen, I, I am not so jaded to be as, as a person who's like, oh, it's the same talking points or whatever. I just think that she's a legend on every, on every level. And I think that it, it what's interesting to me is that I wish that it wasn't just Nicole Gibbs that was in that was a player that was there. I wish that there were more players that were in there. Well, that's, that's and, an interesting thing. I'm curious, and maybe you know this, how Nicole Gibbs even herself wound up there because this is a press conference, so it's very unusual to the point yeah. that I can never remember another press player showing up to a press conference before. Well, Caroline. Um, <laughs> Caroline, yes, <laughs> naturally. Um, no, I think the re- I think how it happened was be- was that she was invited to go do it by Billy. Okay. Because she had been. Uh, 
kind of going back because obviously Nicole has played world team tennis before. Uh, so she has a connection with Billie Jean King. And so she had been emailing or texting Billie um, in the in the wake of all of the Raymond Moore stuff because Nicole was was incredibly perturbed, I guess, is one word I would use to describe it, but doesn't really capture it all. Just very um, uh, it really got under her skin what she was seeing on Twitter and what she was hearing from the men and uh, the comments that Raymond Moore made. Um, and she's a smart girl, went to Stanford, you know, pretty well-educated kid. Um, so yeah, so Billie Jean invited her to to the press conference um, and then kind of roped her in. And Nicole afterwards was telling me, she's like, that's like the most scared I've ever been. <laughs> is when like what basically when Billie Jean King like gives you, hands you the mic and is like, speak of your experience. <laughs> you know? She's like, what? No, you, <laughs> you speak, you speak. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, but it was, it was, I thought, I thought, I thought they handled it really, really well. And and the way that they did it was Chris Everett was up there. She kind of said, we'd, you know, we've been getting media requests and I'm going to talk about the past and Billie Jean's going to talk about the future. So Chris Everett kind of basically went back in time and just tried to explain to people and give people the context of the WTA and the context for women's tennis. And, you know, the strides that that have been made. And yet, obviously, given the events of, of you know, uh, last week, strides that still need to be made, um, that the fight isn't over quite yet. And um, and one of the, the big talking points that's kind of come out um, over the course of the last couple of weeks is is that, you know, Billy says it, um, Chris Everett said it. Uh, I talked to former WTA CEO Bart McGuire, who was the CEO of the tour when during the glory days when when the women were pulling in uh, comparable, if not better numbers. Yeah, the Venus the Envy days. Yeah, exactly. Like late 90s, early 2000s. And every single one of them says they're like, you know, when we were doing great, like, you know, the ATP still didn't want anything to do with us. It's always been a, divi- a division. And I think Steve Tigner wrote a fantastic piece for Tennis.com recounting this, kind of like tennis's gender divide. And that that divide has existed from the inception of this becoming, in, you know, at the open era yeah. of like Billie Jean saying, you know, like back in the day, you know, uh, the guys wanted to boycott like Arthur Ashe and all those guys. They wanted to boycott Wimbledon. And she went, she went to Arthur, who was her good friend. And she said, you know, solidarity, brother, like, we'll do it too. Like the girls will, if you guys like boycott, we'll boycott. And she said, they never even got back to us. Yeah. Like they just didn't want anything to do with us and they they didn't want it, you know? And so that divide carries forward. And, and, and I do hope that at some point it, it ceases to exist. I don't think that we're going to be in a situation in my lifetime where we see tennis under a unified umbrella. Uh, I think there will always be an ATP and a WTA and the alphabet soup that is also involved as well. But I mean, that was one of, you know, Billy's big talking points is just like together as a singular unit to the extent that we can cooperate. There's a lot of good that we can do. This is an incredible platform that these athletes have um, to kind of, you know, be better. And that's always been, I think, you know, Ben knows this, but always been my, my recurring argument when it comes to equal prize money is like, we should have it because we can, and we should, like, that should be the goal. And, and, you know, I can, I can have the economics argument until the cows come home, happy to do it. But the fact of the matter is like, we get to, you don't get to walk up there and say tennis is the like an incredibly progressive sport, which some people argue. 
Um, and there's evidence of it in terms of, you know, um, you know, having gay players, lesbian players, open gay players, things like that. Um, equal prize money, you know, men and women competing side by side with each other, like no other sport does that. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, the, the women's side is is the biggest and most successful professional league in the world. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't then argue all that and, and pat ourselves on the back and then still have this very like, you know, have this gap that doesn't seem to be closing. Um, and, and if anything, people are trying to widen it. So, so yeah, I mean, Billy just basically spoke a lot about just general equality and, you know, it was hard to argue with anything that she was saying. Yeah. And Billy was taking a bigger picture too. So here's exactly. some audio. It wasn't about right, just tennis and she did yeah. a pretty good job of zooming out as she's learned to do over the course of her decades of advocacy. So with all that in mind, here is Billie Jean King with Chris Ever, and you might hear some Nicole Gibbs too. Anyway, I just want to thank Sam Henderson and the WTA and everyone uh, for allowing us to do this press conference today. Um, it's been a busy uh, few days for all of us, and Chris and I were talking, and we just decided we'd want to talk to you because we keep getting so many requests to talk about the equality and, and the prize money, and it just goes on and on. So we thought maybe it would be fun for all of you if we just uh, talked to you about our various thoughts uh, on the subject. And it's, I think it's a great opportunity uh, to keep the discussion open about inclusion and equality. It's much bigger than prize money or that, that for me is like such a narrow focus. It's really about the world and and what's going on. Just so, you know, I've been accused that if the women were making more than the men that I wouldn't care, and that's not true. Okay, let me just explain an epiphany I had when I was 12 years old. I played tennis one year. I'd want to be number one in the world at 11. Fast forward to... Uh, 12 years old, and some of you know this story already, but a lot of people do not. I was daydreaming at the Los Angeles Tennis Club about our sport, and I started thinking about it. Everyone wore white shoes, white socks, white clothes. Everybody played with white balls in those days, and everybody who played was white. And I asked myself the question, where is everybody else? Where is everybody else? And at that moment, I basically made up my mind I would spend the rest of my life fighting for equal rights and opportunities for boys and girls, men and women. I didn't say girls. I didn't say men. I said bo all, all genders, both genders. And that tennis, if I were lucky enough to make it to the top, why am I having trouble with this? God, I can yell. Is this, is this better? God. Kiss yeah. it like a, a rock star. <laughs> no. um, so I promised myself that I would um, spend the rest of my life that tennis would be my platform. And I knew I had to at least become number one if anyone was ever going to listen, particularly already at 12. As a girl, I knew my journey would be very different from a boy's journey. I knew it would be probably more difficult. But that's the deal. Now, most of you know I grew up with a younger brother, Randy Moffat, who played 12 years of Major League Baseball. So he and I were um, in a situation that, that we both were very supportive of each other to, to live our dreams. And I was very fortunate, and I think Chris would say the same thing, my dad was huge in my life. He validated what I dreamt about as well as my brother. And a lot of times, as a girl, you don't get that same validation within a family unit. So I owe my dad 
and my mother, but particularly my father in, in that area. So what's really important to me is that this discussion goes much further and much deeper, okay? This is about inclusion. We're just lucky. The tennis players are really lucky. But any time a person is making less than another person, it doesn't help. Let's just take a family, okay? A family trying to make ends meet. When a woman makes 78 cents on the dollar and brings it home, her family suffers. Her husband suffers. If she's a single mother, she suffers because she doesn't have as much money for her children. This goes really deep. This isn't about, we happen to be the lucky ones. We're at the top. People talk about us. We make lots of money, the top players. But this goes down to grassroots, real families, real people. And that is just in the United States. Now, if we want to go outside the United States, it's a whole different world. It's, 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 some places are impossible for women. So what's important is that we encourage each other that we're good to each other and kind to each other and really elevate each other always and forever, okay? So we represent as tennis, because we have men and women, we're one of the few that can lead globally on these issues. And that's what my life's about, and that's what I care about. Tennis was actually secondary to me, okay? The reason I'd go and do that sponsor meeting is tennis was secondary. This inclusion, when it's about all of us, is everything. And we have a chance to continue to lead. And to have equal prize money in the major sends a message. It's not about the money. It's about the message that we talk about, how important it is. But any time you discount another human being by gender, by race, by disability, or whatever, we're not helping ourselves. But don't ever, you want everyone to make a lot. I mean, at least I do. We want to make the pie bigger, the marketplace bigger for all, for all of you. So you have jobs, whether you're a camera person, a photographer, a writer, or whatever, that's what we want. We want more people to have more opportunities. But to argue over this prizeman issue, what about when Chris, Chris and Martina were playing and their ratings were big, better than the men? We didn't go, oh, we deserve more than the men. No, let's just keep it equal, let's help each other. So anyway, let's have some fun. Um, Anyway, it, it's not a he thing, it's not a she thing, it's a we thing, okay? I'm telling you, this is the only way the world's going to make it. Well, I think what Andy Murray said, when he, he's not going to tell his daughter, which is his new baby, that he's, she's going to get less. He says, how would you ever want to tell your child that you're less than? Uh, that's, he can't do that, he's right. Rowenka came out and said the same thing. So this new generation of men are really going to help. They're going to help a lot. And it's just like I always wanted a straight quarterback to come out in, in favor of the, the gay guys on the team. When a straight quarterback ever comes out and really supports that, you will see things change. We are in a very elevated position. We can make a difference because we can reach people. We can inspire people. We can motivate. The real sheroes and heroes are local, by the way. They're local. The real sheroes and heroes, but we can motivate and inspire. Okay? But we need to just, it's so obvious. Just put yourself in somebody else's shoes. I'm always trying to pretend I'm, okay, how would I feel if I were in this position? How would I feel if I'm in that position? And try to get myself out of myself. But the, these young generation of men and the women as well, I mean, Nicole Gibbs is here today. She's a player who keeps 
texting me like crazy, like she wants to do blogs and she's thinking about it. And she, now she's, she said it's drawn her in this whole, the, well, Nicole's here. You talk to yourself, Nicole. Tell your truth. <laughs> no, no, get up and talk. This is the way we teach each other. Come on, we're mentoring. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Just say what, what you were texting me. It's great to hear you, because you're a young generation. This is the future. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to thank you guys for your words today. You guys have been such mentors to me, uh, you know, throughout my career, just with your tennis and also using your platform, which I think is so, so important. I was just talking um, to Jeff over here. Um, you know, I, I got into a little spat on Twitter last night. I wouldn't call it a spat, but I was just countering some negative opinions for women on tour with some statistics and some you know, of my own thoughts about equality and, you know, finding a way that everybody can support one another, like you said. And I had multiple girls in the locker room just come up to me and say, hey, I saw your I saw your tweets last night, I saw your messages, but, you know, my coach told me not to get involved. Or really? I didn't think it was smart for me to get involved. And I'm not going to name names, but it it's, really, it's really disappointing. It's like... Okay, so you see me out there kind of putting myself out there, trying to give myself an opportunity to use my platform, and you think, oh, I have an opportunity to use mine too, but I'm not going to do that because, you know, maybe the media won't like it, or maybe the men who are following me who have these opinions won't like it. Um, I think there's there's far too much worrying about what other people are going to think um, when you're campaigning for equality as a woman. Um, and I think it's really important for us to, you know, do what you're saying, use your platform, and, and really just, you know, fight a good fight. Oh, what gosh. do you What do you say to the ones that say they don't want to get involved or get committed to this? Um, you know, I try. I try not to be too heavy-handed because, you know, that doesn't work. You're right. <laughs> yeah, like like you're saying though, you can never you can never really like fully put yourself in someone else's shoes. So I'm not going to say you need to do that next time. But sure. What I will say is, hey, I would really appreciate some support on that, or, hey, I'm going to write a blog in the next couple weeks, would you be willing to give a quote for that that's authentic, that's unfiltered, and, you know, for that, I actually, I get a lot of positive responses, so I think it's appealing to people in a way that scares them a little bit. If I could give you some advice, don't never be fearful of telling your truth, and I think, I'm saying that because of my generation, there was almost so much fear about telling the truth and about consequences and about image and about how you're going to look and how you can sound and and you know what it's it's you, you know it's all wrong it's all wrong and so I admire you for speaking out as a current player and just keep doing it. Doesn't matter. You have a platform because we're global now. We weren't global when we started. This is fantastic. So after all that, as Courtney, much to Courtney's delight, things finally shifted to forehands and backhands and whatnot. Yes. Mostly, though, because, I mean, <laughs> Federer pulled out before he hit a single one. Uh, yeah. Let's go to him. Federer hasn't played a match since Australia. Um, and his comeback has proved sort of abortive. Um, people didn't think it would be in Miami. He added it to this. Federer, I still remember, we did an episode last year that, like, led off with Roger Federer's projected schedule. I was like, oh, Federer put his schedule. Let's see what, and, like, and it's meant nothing. Yeah, he has played, with the exception of Brisbane, he's played nothing that was projected that was like, and Australia, obviously, um, nothing that was like unexpected. Everything he thought he would play, he hasn't. Everything he didn't think he'd play, he sort of has. I think he just got put on the Rome entry list today. Yeah. So yeah, so it's been a very messy year for Roger. How much concern 
even if this uh, stomach ailment that he pulled out with would seem to be a short-lived thing, how much concern do you think there should be for Rogers' year? Because he's certainly not gaining ground on anybody this year, the way that he's been forced on the sidelines. He's fine. There's, I mean, there's not, there's no reason to be concerned about about the stomach illness and pulling out. And I mean, I thought that his whole explanation of how he got hurt was like weird. I was like, so like he was drawing a bath and he was trying to like show us exactly the movement because he turned one way and then he turned back and then he heard like a click. Um, and so he knew something was up with his knee. But then when like reporters kept pressing him on it for the details, he was like, you know, I don't even know how I heard it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of amusing. Um, but I, I mean, I think Roger will be fine. I, I, I'm not too concerned. Um, you know, clay is clay and it is what it is. And obviously not his best surface, but Roger's worst surface is still better than most. Um, and then we'll see, you know, we'll see at Wimbledon. I feel like I'm like super boring because I don't offer like the hot takes on these things. And I keep telling everybody to chill out and just wait until a certain player hits a certain part of the season. Um, but uh, but with Raj, I mean, I thought that it was incredibly ambitious for him to play Miami. Yeah. You know, to have to have knee surgery at the beginning of February and then to go back into competition. And he said that he was only pain free, like not pretty recently. Like it wasn't like he was like pain free for like three weeks and he's been training hard for for full three. It was something like 10, like nine or 10 days or something like that. I, my brain is a bit fried at 2 a.m. But um, so it seemed it seemed weirdly rushed and especially given that he obviously skipped India Wells, a tournament that, you know, is not a tournament that he would ever want to skip, whereas Miami is a tournament that he skips all the time um, and has never really been keen on playing if he didn't have to. Uh, it just it felt like a weird schedule audible to call. Like it was like an overly aggressive one. Um, but at the end of the day, he ended up, as you said, not not hitting a single forehand. So, you know, is he in, is he playing Monte Carlo? I think he's on the Monte Carlo list. Yeah, so he's. Okay. Be, I think I'm not yeah. sure about Madrid, but he's on the Monte Carlo list and the Rome list. Yeah. So he'll he'll get matches. And, and I mean, I think I would go a little against that. I feel like feel like if Roger thinks he's healthy and there's a Masters event coming up and he hasn't played and he's short on matches this year, he would play pretty much no matter where it was. I wasn't surprised when I'm entering Miami on that front. Um, I mean, because Miami, as much as it's not his favorite tournament, a lot of that has to do with you know his IMG disputes probably. Uh, in, re- in more recent years, he did fine with it when he was, you know, at his peak, oh, four, right. five, six, whatever. Except for losing to Rafa there, that one early match they had, when Ra- their very first match out of so many. Um, <laughs> the yeah, I wasn't surprised by that. So I, I just think that it's gonna, it'll hurt Rafa. Sorry, it'll hurt Roger down the road in terms of just ranking. I mean, he left a lot of yeah, it's, it's not, a lot it's of a good time of year. It's a good time of year for him that he got a zero out of. Um, so I mean, he could be out, of, he could be out of top five pretty easily. Basically. Yeah, I mean that that is that is the concern because if I'm Roger, the one thing that the best case scenario for me and the thing that I want super badly is to be seated number two at Wimbledon. Right. That's the thing that I'm looking at. I'm not concerned about the French. I'm not concerned about what happens on clay necessarily, aside from the fact that I need points to try and get up there. And did he overtake Maria too with Maria's early, early loss, or am I making that no, up? No, he came close, but he's he's only. Okay. He, this is what we'll get to next. I mean, he's only right now uh, 120 points short of Murray. So it's very okay. close. It's and very close. And Murray thing. has Madrid to defend. Right. And Murray has Madrid to defend. And Roger doesn't have much to defend. And going to Wimbledon front, Roger will get help by the seeding formula. Um, That's true. he'll have his uh, – he usually – assuming he defends his hollow title, which it probably will, looking way ahead. Um, things like that. So his, I think he'll probably get to number two. But the thing is that, like, none of these guys – and we go to Rafa, who also pulled out – 
It was very affected by the heat in that match. It reminded me a little bit of the Smechek match in Australia, where he was also just out of it. Oh, this yeah. One. This one, I guess, he didn't wasn't able to cross the finish line. Obviously, the stakes are lower in Miami than at the Australian Open. Joomer gets a, a win by retirement 3-0 in the third. And, like, mid-game, I was surprised by, like, watching it back. that Rafa, like, tried to come out for the fourth game of the set and then just sort of threw in the towel from there. Um, anyhow... None of these guys are closing on Novak at all. <laughs> Novak True. is still doing his thing, and the, the the resistance movement is weakening, at least at the top. Like, it's all there's just nobody is mounting any sort of charge. Vavrinka had a rough North American swing. Um, he lost, I think, what, third or fourth round in Newell's, and his first match in Miami, uh, Nishikori's and Bert and Burditch or and Ronich are chugging along in the straw, but they're not the ones who I think are really seen as being able to be an immediate threat. Maybe Ronich, but he's I was going to say Ronich. And I'm, surpri- and I'm surprised that Ronich is playing this week with how badly things ended for him at Indian Wells. And I'm really, playing well. And I'm really surprised that, yeah, he's still in it. So hopefully he's not making an unwise decision. He plays Kyrgios next. I would love to see a Kyrgios-Djokovic final. That's I think, the <laughs> dream scenario left for be fun. the tournament. Um, and IMG would love that, obviously, so they'll do what they can. Yeah, I, I just think that this week has shown that the w, that the ATP is. We'll see what happens. There's still tennis to go. It's tough talking mid tournament about what the tournament means. But right now, there's only one you know top ten player in the quarters. Or oh, sorry, that's not right at all. Scratch that. <laughs> there's nobody in, else in the in the big five, including Ravrinka, who made the quarters even. So like, things aren't getting tougher for Djokovic. And I think this week increases what I already think is his pretty good chances. Big picture of like calendar slamming. I just don't see the resistance there. I don't. Murray also mentioned, didn't mention, but had a crap North American swing as well. Pretty crap. Pretty, pretty crap. crap. Yeah. No. I mean, it's interesting. I is that something based off what you've seen, Ben? Like that people are keying in on and have noticed, or is it like being papered over? And I only ask that maybe because of you know slight defensiveness on my side of the aisle of constantly feeling like you know people are constantly like taking note of like seeds falling and top players falling and things like that and granted the first two months that's happened a lot um more on the women's side than on the men's but like has it been really noticed or is like Novak's domination so such a thing that people kind of don't even when these players pull out or they lose early it doesn't even create a ripple effect because the the prevailing opinion is, well, it doesn't affect the end result anyway. I think people are noticing the individual trees falling in this forest. I'm not sure they see the, the clear cutting that's happening from a, you know, a larger zoomed out point of view. I, I just think that right now, the I think you mentioned even quite before we're coming on the show, like right now, this draw as it's shaking out in, in ATP land can be seen as like a glimpse of the future, you know, that uh, right now, we're seeing things like a Kyrgios Ronich quarterfinal, which feels very much like what we always thought we would get. We're seeing Nishikori in there. We're seeing Goffin in there, and so there, it does seem to be like a bit of a, a final. Team. Finally, these younger guys, if not actually stepping up in a meaningful way and make and winning tournaments and beating the head guy, top guys head to head consistently, at least they are, you know, showing up at the later rounds or their numbers well, that- are growing. Well, that's the thing, though, is that like it's it's the com- it, you know it's the Tebbit comment that when these guys go, somebody has to fill the void, and so you are seeing if you want to what take we call Miami, the roundage rule, yeah, the roundage rule, right? So so if you look at the the men's side for just Miami, obviously, um, although I mean, 
you could kind of make an argument a little bit about about Indian Wells as well. But, um, you know, with for a variety of different reasons, whether losses or withdrawals or whatever, with the big five, well, four of the big five taking an early exit, that created space. And so the players that we do expect and have expected over, you know, so much time to fill that void, they actually have. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we expect a team to be in there. Goffin, um, you know, all the players that you named off. You, Gael Monfils had a great win tonight um, over Grigor Dimitrov. He's, had, another a, he's name. had a quietly great year. Yeah, I'm he loving it. He doesn't do much quietly. But he's no. like, he's been consistently putting up good. He made quarters in Australia, quarters of Indian Wells, and quarters in Miami. I think the only other guy who's done that is Djokovic. So no, he's been great. The coaching change has been and awesome Ronich. for him and Ronich, yeah. But the coaching change has been fantastic for Gael. And he's 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 offered offered put forth a more mature attitude about his career than he has in the past, which is great to hear. I mean, he's taking it far more seriously right now than than maybe he was back and consistently seriously. And it's about know, time. And it's about time. And and you know. It, Anybody just needs to queue up an old NCR episode. You've heard our our raves slash rants about Gael. We love him. We want him to be good. He could be a, a game changer in terms of just like ele- taking tennis to a new place. He's getting older, but there's still time. And it would really bum me out if Gael Monfils never got a chance at a slam. You know, Not maybe sure. he makes he maybe makes the French Open final. Who knows? He definitely could do that. I've said that for every, every single year at the French Open. I think he's in play, and he's. He's you know, play if he can just and like, now win he, and now more than ever because he's showing more rounds. professionalism and steadiness and so yeah. I think all of that friendship and magic always helps him and always gives him a push and now he's getting pushed from a, a further along place than before. Oh, other I guess one other last thing I'll say on the men. Quick shout out to or I guess did you watch the Dimitrov Murray match because that was I did that was um, Dimitrov Disaster. big win for Dimitrov who's had a awful you know twelve months or so. Sure. Maybe even beyond that. I mean, we talked about him before I was in the show. So that's an even if it even if Murray was kind of a disaster, uh, I think that when hopefully could springboard Grigor to be better than he is right now. Because Grigor, all you know, shading aside, is better than number twenty seven. Yes. You know, the play, he's ranked behind right now. I'm looking at the ranking, it's like Quavis and Trotsky and that should not be happening. He should be a round of sixteen guy. Yeah. Week in, week out, round of sixteen. You know, so he should be a top 16er minimum, if not the top 12er. Because in my mind, I think that he's a top 12er. He should be. Yeah. You know, totally. So, totally. Speaking of people who are more than top 12, notably top one, Serena Williams, Courtney, keeps losing things. And it's weird. She hasn't won a title since August. She is 0 for uh, in her tournaments this year. She followed up her finals runs in. Australia and Indian Wells, both disappointing finals, but some of the finals, with a loss to Svetlana Kuznetsova in the fourth round of Miami, and a surprising loss in that she really kind of faded in the final two sets, losing one and two. Um, it's people are start people in the in the larger sports world. She was on Sports Center. People were talking like, "This is the end for Serena," you know, "Father Time undefeated" type, you know, talking head points are coming up for Serena. Is that a fair button to be reaching for at this point? Do you think with how Serena started her year, or should or are you still or would you downplay uh, this bad start? I don't downplay it, but I don't actually. I mean, I really don't understand the the chicken little reaction to to her 2016 season so far. I mean, she's granted. I mean, there's tons of numbers about just how unpress not unprecedented, but it's been a while since she's been in the drought that she's been in. Uh, gone 0 for 4 in her last four tournaments. 
in terms of titles, dating back to the loss of Vinci at the U.S. Open. Um, and yeah, it's a long, it's a long, it's a long span. I think still, you know, I think I mentioned this in the, in the podcast last week, the thing that, that I'm worried about with Serena, because, okay, so many thoughts. Let me try and, <laughs> let me try and, uh, um, not Take get time. lost in, yeah, get lost in them. I think that there are each loss in context to me is totally understandable the least understandable one was maybe Kerber mm-hmm. um, because that's just not a player that I would expect Serena to lose to, not in a final and not at the start of the season at the Australian Open. So that was definitely surprising. This year, I would say Vinci is still the most surprising of all. Well, yeah, okay. But 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 even – no, but see, but here's the thing about the Vinci loss to me. Like everybody heard me last summer. I was like, dude, Serena, just pull out of the tournament. This is too much pressure. I couldn't deal with it. Like, you know, yeah. like and that's still how I felt. Like there was an incredible amount of pressure that she was trying to deal with and just trying to beat – than Roberta Vinci and I mean Vinci played a hell of a match but that match was more about that was more than just about forehands and backhands with Serena there was so much going on and mentally it was difficult for her and so I understand that and I and I understand that loss Kerber a little bit more difficult to understand Azarenka pretty much understand it because closest rival yeah also just the emotions I think really took her um by surprise. And that match just felt like a coin flip, really, over the past few years. It's just been coming up Saran more often than not. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that match, that match I, I would agree with you for sure, is the least surprising of all of them. Least surprising. And then with Sveta this week, the thing about it is I've been thinking a lot about Serena and, like, you know, this week and whatever. And there's a lot of different theories that I will throw out, put it that way. One, I mean, Serena was definitely in a mood in Miami. She was not having it. There just was, like... Not like, you know, very, very short press conferences. Those transcripts Um, were terse. Her post-loss press conference lasted for two minutes and 40 seconds. Mm -hmm. Other journalists did time it. She cut off one of the press conferences earlier in the week. And she said, you know, like, I feel like I've been, I don't want to be here. I feel like I've been giving, you know, interviews every single day and talking to the press every single day, which is probably about fair because, yeah, if you make the final India Wells, you're doing six press conferences yeah. plus your pre-press. So you're doing seven. Um, so when she was here, it just it didn't she just didn't seem right from the get go Took three sets to beat Christina McHale um, in her opening round and just never really seemed settled. And so against a player like a Kuznetsova, who can we know in the past can beat Serena and. Obviously, now Sveta's into the semis, so she's having a great week. She's playing some good tennis. We know how good Sveta can be. So it wasn't like a huge red flag to me. The other thing that I will throw out there is that this is only the second year in a very long time that Serena has had to play the Indian Wells-Miami double. Right. Yeah. And I think that that does have an impact because I will say that just from my personal perspective (laughs) as being the first time that I've done it since 2011 – it is a it is jarring. Yeah, that's why I that's don't do it. Very yeah, exactly. It's a very jarring transition, and people do need to kind of cut these players some slack in Miami. Like you go from you know searing heat, but very dry, very chilled out conditions in Indian Wells, to coming to Miami where the the conditions are oppressive, oppressive in a very different way than Indian Wells. I never consider the Indian Wells conditions oppressive. I consider them harsh. Because if you're in direct sunlight at like two o'clock and you're playing from two to four, it's and from brutal. a playing perspective, the wind and the the, the wind ball yes. can be really awful. All of that, even but my like, poor, terrible level playing, you notice <laughs> that out there. <laughs> but like here in Miami, it's it's just a different level, so your body has to adjust, and you know every it's it, it's just it's very jarring. And then on top of that, you're about to go into clay, 
So a lot of the European players, it's hard for them to really focus and really want it, I think, here in Miami. Because they know if they lose, they, they can just hop on a plane and go home. Right. So there's – like I. I say all that just to say this to kind of humanize the whole process a little bit. And so I, I understand how difficult this might have been for Serena. And on top of that, to come in with all the pressure of like your eight time champion here, you're going for number nine, 20 match winning streak going into that Sveta, that Sveta match in terms of, of her play in Miami. I don't know. I, I can see that swirl of, 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 factors kind of coming together and just eliciting that performance i get that i just think that for me it's a little more surprising just be, and it shows maybe that there's something that serena just needs again it feels ridiculous saying more time off because she's taken played relatively pretty little uh in this last six months at all um but miami's always been a happy place for her it's always been when things sort of even when she was having off years miami generally was an uptick in her in her results so for her to have this sort of exhaustion or whatever and i guess a lot of that is obviously probably attributable to this doing this indian wells miami double for the first time in so long i guess first time making it to the indian wells final since 01 and she was doing the miami turnaround after that um so so i get that but i just i do think that it the bigger picture questions are fair with serena i mean i saw it definitely in the kerber loss that she looked and maybe in the azarenka one as well too i didn't see all of this feta loss from from what i can tell she was just generally so off it's probably a tough one to judge um, but she has lost a step, Serena, I think. I don't think she's physically, even though she's not, and maybe this is, you know, building injuries or whatever, but she's not at her best right now, just as a player. And that's to be expected when she's turning 35 later this year. The fact that, you know, she's is at number one being the oldest ever. And I don't think we talk about all of Serena's oldest ever records that she's setting right. constantly. Um for one thing, because Venus is still older in some tour. <laughs> and, but the other thing, just because Serena's doing so much else that it gets lost in the woods, it lost in the weeds a bit. But Serena's still 34 and a half years old, number one. This is unprecedented territory for tennis. And if the fade comes quickly whenever it does, that might happen. I Obviously, I'm not yeah. going to bet against Serena, but I've said this before on the show. You never know when you're watching a top player, like when they won, when, almost never know, pretty much ever, I think, when they've won their last major. You don't know. if it, it, It's entirely possible with Serena. I'm not betting on this, but it's entirely possible that her last major win of her career will have been last Wimbledon and that she won't get any more. That could happen. Yeah, I mean, it's you, sports, you, you just of don't, course. Yeah, you just don't know. Looking back at other players, when Federer got hit, what looks like will be probably be his last major at 2012 Wimbledon, he regained number one with that win and was on top of the world and playing great, you know, all that stuff. When Leighton Hewitt got his last major, it was way back in 02 when he was just starting out. Um, you know, his dominance, Andy Roddick, when he won his, yeah, Andy Roddick won his <laughs> yeah. young, fresh-faced kid in 2003. No one knew that, you know, Roger Federer would come and torment the rest of his life, you know, and going, and women's side too, I'm sure this matchup, you know, uh, Justine Ennin won her final U.S. Open in 07, I guess was her last major, and she dominated Venus and Serena in great, great matches at that tournament, and they never won any others. Obviously, yeah. her, her, you know, her very premature retirement and 18-month absence, whatever, 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 was obviously unusual. But uh, yeah, you just don't know. You don't know when the well will suddenly run dry. And it's entirely possible. I'm not betting on it again, but I'm just, you know, putting out there as a thought that Serena won't tie Steffi, as we've been saying, it's a given. Every major is hard. These things are, even for someone as good as Serena, these things are never handed to you on a platter. Well, and it's this thing that, again, I think that when we were having all of the Serena discussions last summer, it, it I'm pretty sure I put forth this uh and ben knows this my take on this as well 
you're kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place when it comes to discussing Serena and pontificating about Serena because there's two competing narratives. There's one, which is she's flawless. She's a superhero. She's amazing. She's incredible. She never loses. She's phenomenal and she should be worshipped and we should all bow down and every win is a blessing and she can wipe the floor with everybody else and da 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 da. All of that is true. Yeah. Then there's the competing narrative, which is more the one that I subscribe to, which is that Serena is incredibly human. And that that aspect and her humanity and the fact that she does get rattled by emotions and that, you know, she's the one that like when she goes back to Indian Wells, she's in tears, whereas like Venus is smiling, you know, um, that that the, the emotions still take her back when she steps on that court against Azarenka, you know, uh, a, a Sunday ago. She's human in every single way. And in that way, like I try not to put expectations on her while at the same time absolutely recognizing that her resume requires you to give her the benefit of the doubt. Right. Right. Like, like you said, you're not going to bet against her. Right. I'm not going to bet against her either. And that's why, but, and that's why her year, which has been by all definitions, fine. I mean, final, final fourth round. Right. Not awful by any stretch, but she's for Serena, it's like, no. And, and, and for, but for Serena, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so below her standard because what, she got two runner up plates and lost to a two time slam champ. Right. Yeah. So you can play both sides of it. It's just like she, it's her reality. And it's how she assesses herself. That's it's what part I was going to say. Part, she, part of why I don't feel like I'm being, you know, too harsh because I'm sure Serena's pissed as hell with her results this year. Well, yeah, because it goes back to even Australia when you ask that, you know, we're sitting there, we're trying to give Serena the benefit of the doubt and we're trying to like give her outs in a lot of ways. I mean, I know oh, in her so, pre-term press when she was really cranky. Right. Yeah. When she was cranky and she kind of not snapped at you, but gave you that look. But um, when Ben asked her, you know, what it was at the Australian Open and pre-tournament press conference and Ben asked Serena after, a, you know, a press conference that really did kind of have her kind of doing a postmortem on the U.S. Open and kind of putting everything into context her and starting the year. how low her expectations were. Yeah, she was like, my expectations are really low. I'm just happy to be playing. You know, it's just such a gift. All of those sort of platitudes. And then Ben says, well, then, OK, what's your... Um, what would make for a good tournament for you here? What would make for a good tournament for you? And she shoots him a glare and it's like, come on, you can't even ask me that. Because obviously, <laughs> despite the humanity and despite even for her understanding that things are hard now and harder with each day that goes by because you get older. But the expectations are still there. She's still a champion. She's so still Tyler expects, Buff. Tyler yeah, Buff. Yeah, exactly. And so... That's also the mind space that Serena finds herself in. So even though the rest of us are sitting here grappling with it, Serena's grappling with it too. And unfortunately for tennis, as we all know, it stops for no one, not even the number one and the greatest of all time in Serena Williams. Uh, it, it continues to truck on and she can't hit a pause button. She did her best last year by not picking up a racket after the U.S. Open to hit a pause button to help process it. But I mean, you know, I think that there's also that, I think that the 2015 hangover, it's very possible that it's far more serious than, than maybe we thought it was. Um, and that would, again, speaking to the humanity of the situation, that would be so understandable to me. And maybe it's just the longer term, even beyond 2015. I mean, she's been going, and we talked about this back yeah, in 20, 2013, yeah. especially when she played that incredibly heavy schedule. Managed to win, you know, ten titles or nine titles, something like that. One of which was Bostad. I mean, she has been overloading, and it's possible that all this is catching up to her right now. You know, in in the more Toglu heavy play strategy, which paid a lot of dividends. She racked up a lot of titles in this run, so it's hard to say, you know, that it was a bad strategy per se. But there might be some burnout. Might be eventually 
you know, inevitable. Um, and so someone, someone asked if I thought she was going to take a wild card into Charleston to, like, you know, get back on the right track. Absolutely not. No. I, I, as much as I would love to see her in Charleston, uh, no, I think she's going to go take a nap for three months and then come yeah, back. Yeah, I think she's going to chill out until Madrid. Yeah. Madrid, um, yeah. Maybe maybe, and, maybe even skip – or, you know, maybe do one of her early pullouts in Madrid and something and – I would think that she would play Madrid and then pull out of Rome. Yeah, she she did well there, which is which has been a pattern in the past. But um, yeah, it's so so, like I said, it's it's just like it's a tough it's a tough puzzle to solve. um, Just because it's it's yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, but as we also know in tennis, it just takes one result, and then all of a sudden, no one's talking about anything again. Right. Right. Like it's like, oh, and then she goes and goes on a tear and wins Madrid, skips Rome and then wins the French Open. And it's like nothing ever happened. Right. No, you know, so it can be. So I I don't like pontificating about about her future, but that's all. It's all fair and it's all accurate and it's all not it's not shade. It's just kind of being like we get it is hard. Yeah, it's real hard to do. this. And these moments should make us appreciate just how incredible she was to be such a. Uh, pencil inable uh, champion for so long, especially in these last few years. Um, speaking of people who have not been pencil inable anywhere lately, I guess brief shout outs to this very solid weeks, I think, even though I, I'm looking at the results. Fourth round quarterfinals, not spectacular, neither lived up to their seating entirely. But Muguruza and Halleck both had good weeks, um, I think. You think this was sort of a, a course correction for each of them? Halleck, especially. I mean, like, Halleck's. North American swing was weaker than it was last year by results. Her ranking will not have been helped by this. But I think overall, Simona, probably more positives and negatives to take away from this. I think the Romanian police are coming for you. Yeah. Um, but yes, no, I think so. And I think that that's, that's pretty much, I talked to Simona today after her loss, and she was obviously incredibly disappointed. That's a match that I think that we all expect for her to win, and that's a match she expects for her to win to Against beat Baczynski, yeah. after, especially after taking the first set. Um, and she really just succumbed. She she just uh, succumbed. Yeah, succumbed, right? Yep, that's the yeah. word. I was like, succumbed? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's almost three. Um, but she succumbed to physical kind of distress and it was a very hot and humid day and she said she was sweating a lot and it just it hit her in the second set and she just kind of couldn't really do much from there um but yes absolutely positive um four weeks in the u.s especially when you consider i mean she was an absolute terror to watch for the first two months um simona and so much of that has to do with an abbreviated preparation and injuries and illness and you know in the, the off season and the beginning of the season but yeah, I think that she goes into clay in a good spot, and she doesn't really have a ton of the points to defend, so she doesn't have to deal with too much pressure. She has that Stuttgart semi, and that's about it. Um, so I think she she's in a good spot. Muguruza, I mean, that match against Azarenka was phenomenal. It was really good. And it was a straight set match, but it was so good. If you guys haven't seen it, definitely, like, cue it up if you can find it, especially the first set. The first set's phenomenal. So good. Um, and, you know, hopefully with Garbina, like she, she leaves feeling like, okay, in North America, I played good tennis. I got nipped in the end. I didn't make, you know, the result that I would want, but I'm playing better than I was before. And, and so she's shown more signs of life in the last, cause she had that, that pretty good result in Doha where she proclaimed Mugu is back and whatnot. Um, so she's, she's slowly getting there. The difference that I would put between the two is that it just seems like and this is just totally from an outside perspective. It just seems like there's like a better vibe in like Team Halep than there is in Team Muguruza. 
So I don't in just in terms of like it's. it's Are you just saying that because of like Cahill's general, you know? Yeah, it's positive coaching timeouts and things like that. Well, and also that I think Simona has fully bought into the Cahill way. She's like learn. I mean, it's very different from her, so it takes her some time to learn it. You know, like he's kind of more laid back. He's he's intense, just like Simona, but you know, he's trying to get her to kind of relax a little bit and be more positive, which is not her way. Right. And you can to- you can totally see like his coaching timeouts are a treat because you can totally see what he, see TV. He knows what he's no he knows what he's doing. I'm not sure again that she's following all of this well as she could be. And I will say in this match today that she lost to Baczynski, she was doing better before he started coming out. Uh, so if you want to, you know, I'm not sure he did not blaming him for the loss really, but you know, she's doing okay before. And then if there's sort of once he came out for the first one, five, four in the first, and then things kind of went south from there anyway. But all that is to say, yeah, I think that both of them at the very least stop the bleeding in North America. For sure. And there was some bleeding, for sure, especially for Simona. Simona's yes. start of the year. More so than Muguruza, right. I thought. Muguruza's was not great at all. Her start of the year was not good. But she, and, and that Azarenka match, and we'll get more to Azarenka in the post-tournament episode, because she's still in the tournament and could easily win it, and, or could easily lose in the quarterfinals. So I don't want to get too much into her, but she's, I think, really establishing herself as, if not number one in the power rankings, and definitely 1A behind Serena right now. So... She's, that's a loss that she should be totally happy with, Muguruza, I would think. Especially having never played Vika before. Which is kind of funny. Yeah, no, it was a it was a Sumic Derby. But yeah, no, it was it was a it was a really good match from Garbini. I would have loved to see that go three sets. Um but yeah, no, those two those two are players that definitely needed to get some traction, and I think that they definitely did in the US. I think, you know, we'll see what happens with Kerber this week. She's still in the tournament. Uh if she gets a good run going, I mean she could be in line for a rematch against Vika. Um, in the semis, if she can pull off a win, who knows, you know, like she could be, we could be talking about her, um, first quarter as being very different, you know, in a few days. Yeah. And shout out also to the, one of the last players I think we haven't really mentioned who's still in this tournament, Tomei Baczynski, got a nice win against Redvanska, is into the semis, doing big things and good to see her back after seeming to be pretty healthy after a start where it didn't look like she had any business really playing in Australia, but just wanted to play through it. With her injury. So I was not yeah, sure. I think, and, yeah. and they didn't, at least if she's recovered in time by Miami, this, that didn't have long-term negative consequences, which I was fearing it might, because she just wasn't ready at all in Australia. No, she wasn't ready and she knew it. Yeah. And, and she was incredibly upfront about it. And I think that, you know, it was interesting. I was thinking about it on the ride home today from site that if I were to look at the top 20 and I were to point to you the player that I think is the happiest, just like in life and chilled out, I think it's Tamea. Okay. And I feel like she's just like, and I, and I think that that does translate into, you know, her tennis, into the way that she deals with pressure situations and stressful situations, that she doesn't get too um, down and too negative, that she can bounce back pretty quickly. And she's been very vocal about her desire. This was coming not even at the beginning of this year. This was like back in uh, China Open, maybe is when I talked to her about this, where she said, you know, the, the comeback is over. Now I'm into career 2.0 firmly and I'm looking at it in with a long-term view. And and I'm trying to do the things that I need to do to like set myself up for a good career. And if that means short-term losses or short-term suffering, quote unquote, so be it. But so long as me and my team are on the same page, like we're fine. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely worrisome to, to, I definitely wondered like, oh, should you have come to Australia? I don't know. But 
it seems to have all paid off. And, and she just really credits hard work. She just says that she's been working super, super hard. And you can see it. I mean, physically, she's she looks you know, very fit. Yeah, she's super fit. I will, so. I will nominate one other person for happiest top 20 or though. Flavia Panetta. Well, OK, well, <laughs> you know, but even then, I don't know. I don't know. Is she? I don't know. I feel like Tamea is just like totally she seems like she's got her stuff figured out. I don't know. Fair. I don't know. Okay. It's not there. I think we have our stuff figured out enough to put a bow on this show. So thank you guys very much for listening to episode 148 of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Send us questions for upcoming shows to no challenges remaining at gmail.com or any other NCR related queries you might have. We also are available on iTunes and any other podcasting app where you can subscribe to us and get new shows delivered automatically so you don't miss a social media posting or whatever if that's how you rely on it. Highly recommend this way to go. It's pretty swell. Everything just comes to you in your pocket or wherever else in the world you are, and it's great, and you can queue them up and binge listen to whatever else you want to do. So yay for that option. The executive producers of No Challenge Remaining are Francisco Resendez of TennisBoss.com and Tao Woolley. Courtney, it's almost 3 a.m. I assume you have feelings on things. I have so many feelings. I have I have some. I'm going to rant about something stupid, like the stupid habit that I have. Um, it's not as – so my best friend, Stephanie, which many of you guys know, belly flops on Twitter. Hi, Steph. Uh, hey, Steph. Um, known her since college. One of the most hilarious quirks that she has, and it's always a longstanding um, – joke that I have with her is that if you just slap a limited edition label on on something anything she'll buy it <laughs> like the minute that it's limited edition she's like well but it's limited edition I'm like Jesus Christ come on so so it always happens she always does it it's hilarious and it's and totally endearing so this week I've been in the Miami Open and I walked down to the store because um and so I'm walking around the store and they have all of those uh Federer emoji shirts and there's like a bunch of different ones. There's like the one that you see him wearing that's his face as an emoji. There's one that says like, just do it. And like, I think the O on the do is like his face emoji in the middle. Mm-hmm. There's like an, a women's cut one that has a lot of weird, almost looks like a shoots and ladders uh, box anyway. And then there's one that's like an RF and whatever. Anyway, so I go down there and I'm walking around the store and I'm like, I mean, these things are going to be kind of in demand, right? And, like, so the whole time that I'm walking around the store, I'm, like, convincing myself as though these things are, like, fucking Beanie Babies. Like, oh, this is totally going to go up in value. <laughs> like, that's very that that's very a, broad city of you. It was a broad city joke. Um, so, so sure enough, I bought two emoji shirts. Oh my God. Now, mind you, I'm a tennis reporter. I don't wear tennis gear ever. Like, just because I think it's inappropriate. Like, I don't wear a Wilson. Yeah, well, uh, but I I don't even. Like, I don't – it feels weird. Like, I have stuff from, like, my fan days, like Vamos Rafa shirts and Delpo shirts and um, Novak stuff and Andy stuff, like, whatever, like, things. But I – all that stuff is, like, just collecting dust in like a closet somewhere. Like I never bust it out and wear it. So I'm like, I buy these two things that are like Federer t-shirts. I'm clearly never going to wear them ever. And I'm just like, and so I'm pumped when I'm like, what the, what the hell did you just do? Like, I just spent like $70 on two t-shirts. It's like, not cheap. Those kind of things. Yeah. They are not yeah. cheap. And I only bought them because I was like, 
I mean, they're kind of limited edition. <laughs> well, they are. Okay. First of they're all, they're not easy to buy. Can I, can I go to the larger message here, which is that now you have is, is this your first Federer swag purchase? Oh God, yeah. So, but like now you're like now you're like wrapped up the whole set. I feel like you know you've, you've welcomed Federer into I don't know what the term you know I was gonna call him like a sister wife or something. That's clearly not right. <laughs> um, you've now welcomed him in and everybody in there. So it's very inclusive of you to be adding to your established. Uh, That's true. I mean, now I do have the big four. You and Roger's relationship has grown so much. It's blossomed really. It's matured. I think. If it was an emoji, it would be. Yeah, like the heart eye ones. Or like, I don't uh, know. I feel like it would just be the shrug. <laughs> Roger, I don't know. Sure, okay. <laughs> Which is still progress. Which is progress. So um, It's fair. not progress. I never hated Roger. Like, let's not let's not treat, try and keep fueling that myth. Um, but yeah, no. So now I have these two t-shirts. And I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Uh, but I, can't, I mean, maybe they'll be like Beanie Babies. Maybe I'll sell them on eBay one day. And, like, make some money. Who knows? Actually, I feel like if there was a Roger and you emoji, or Roger and me, to use the Michael Moore thing, um, it would be the the fist pound because it has the, the knuckles. True. Um, moving on. A plug. I was bored the other day as I was getting – the last episode was buffering or publishing or something. So I made a YouTube playlist of past outros from NCR. I don't know if you saw this, Courtney. I tweeted it out from the – I did not. Account, but yes, I will put it in the description of this episode. I'm going back through them. I think I have like episodes like 80 maybe through the current. So it's a lot of stuff. And it shows a remarkably eclectic sampling of music that was used transformatively on the NCR podcast. Did you get to Taylor Dane yet? Did we already use Taylor Dane? Did you not use Taylor Dane? I'm not sure. She definitely was not. I definitely did not have her on this playlist. She was not more recent episode 80 if we did have her. Should we have Taylor gotta, Dane right now? You gotta ta- you gotta tell it to her heart. That song I, I love Tell I, her she's the only one. What I like so much about that song is that she <laughs> takes like not a single word off. <laughs> there is like stress on every syllable. Love the friends bringing us down. But we keep holding <laughs> out. It's so great. So that'll be our intro right there. Love her. Yeah, and so check it out. I think it, it shows I think it's a nice sort of a nice encapsulation of the schizophrenia of my jukebox in my head. There's some, some like random stuff, some jarring transitions on that. I'm kind of really looking forward to going back on it because like, for example, like this Taylor Dane thing is also kind of an inside joke between Ben and I, because it was like one night in Singapore, right? Where I just like got, I got really punchy. I don't know what I was doing, but I was incredibly punchy and like pulled up the video. We were just laughing so hard watching it like, yeah, over and over and over again. It, so I bet you it's kind of like a weird musical scrapbook of our friendship as well, Ben. And the YouTube playlist has like, it's mostly videos whenever available. So you get to visualize, you talked about like the, the Amy Grant video that's in there, you know, <laughs> so all, these di- all these different things. Your emotion is in there. Lots of stuff. No video for that. Just the audio, but still spectacular. Lots of stuff. Check it out. It'll be in the bio and it's on Twitter already. That's it for episode 148. We'll see you guys next week. I will be in Charleston, I think. Chucktown. Courtney will not be. So another distance episode. Maybe I'll put some together from Charleston uh, with people there. We'll see. It'll be fun either way. That's it. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.